Today's episode is brought to you by DEI Navigator from the Diversity Movement. Here's the deal. More than 80% of organizations have already taken action on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you're one of the people who's suddenly in charge of leading those DEI efforts, there's a good chance you're feeling overwhelmed, confused, and alone. That's why the diversity movement created DEI Navigator. This new monthly membership service is designed exclusively for small to medium-sized businesses who are committed to DEI action and results. It's everything you need all in one place. Access to proven business leaders and certified diversity executives, expert curated content, how-to guides, training, and a community of peers sharing their ideas and lessons learned. All at a fraction of the cost of hiring a full-service DEI consultancy. For more information, head on over to thediversitymovement.com slash AU. That's thediversitymovement.com slash AU. All right, let's get to the show. An investor relationship is probably harder to get out of than a marriage. Like you're in it holding hands with these folks through the good and the bad. And so you want to make sure that you are aligned on what success looks like, that these are people that you actually like and want to work with, and that hopefully they feel the same way about you. Welcome to Equity Raise, leveling the landscape for diverse founders and their VCs. Each year, less than 3% of venture capital funding is invested in startups led by founders of color and women. I am your host, Naya Fela Powell, the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a Black woman who has experienced the headwinds, ups, and the downs of fundraising, I'm excited to share these conversations with you. Today, we're joined by Denise Woodard, founder and CEO of Partake Foods, and Karen Howland, general partner at Circle Up, which provides capital and resources to emerging consumer brands. We'll get to Karen in just a few minutes, but we'll start with Denise, who six years ago was at Coca-Cola's Venturing and Emerging Brands division, working with brands like Honest Tea and Zico Coconut Water. Loved what I was doing. It felt like the perfect mix of entrepreneurial with some corporate structure and had no intention of leaving. And then my daughter Vivian came along and she's seven now, but right around her first birthday, to your point, we learned that she had a lot of food allergies. She's allergic to eggs and corn and tree nuts and bananas, which is also really hard to shop for, hard to prepare food for a combination. Um, and it was at my, through my frustration and at the urging of our babysitter who has some equity in the business that I decided to do something about it. And it was in the summer of 2016 that the idea came to light. And I spent the next year um, moonlighting, working early mornings and late nights uh, to try to figure out how to bring it to life. And then left my job at Coca-Cola in August of 2017 to launch Partake Foods. So inspiring um, and incredible. And so having the a, a journey of working in corporate while starting a startup, I know the grind and the hustle. And so talk to us about how did you know when it was time to take the leap? Because founders really struggle with that. And sometimes you hear people say, oh, you have to be full-time in it to make it happen. And then sometimes you have the tension of how do I pay my bills? And it's hard to thrive when you're trying to survive. So how did you know it was time for you? 
You know, I wish I could say I had a really strategic answer. The decision almost got made for me. So the story is, um, it was almost out of a movie. We were in line at the zoo on a Saturday. I was telling my husband, Jeremy, you won't believe the idea that Martha, our sitter has. She thinks I should start an allergy-friendly food company because I'm so frustrated with the options that I'm finding for Vivian. A gentleman in line in front of us turns around and says, sounds like you have a great idea. You should enter this local pitch competition called the Start Something Challenge. That was on a Saturday. The deadline to enter the competition was on a Monday. I went home and incorporated a business that I called Vivi's Life because I didn't know exactly what we were going to do, but I knew I wanted to make Vivi's Life and the life of millions of people with food allergies a little bit easier and safer. Entered the pitch competition. We win with just an idea. It comes with $10,000 in seed capital, which is great, but probably more important to the story, it comes with some local press. And the last thing I need is my boss at Coke to see me in the newspaper like, local woman starts allergy-friendly food company. And so I was forced to tell my employer what I was working on. And, you know, while they were supportive, they were like, there is a major conflict of interest if you are, you know, selling Coca-Cola to the same customers you're selling this year product to. And so they said, you know, once you have an actual product, you got to hit the road. And so I'm so grateful that for that kick in the butt, because I probably would have tried to turn it into a side hustle or a farmer's market venture. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't think we would have been able to raise the funding or gain the scale that we've been able to if I wasn't working on the business full time. So it gave me a year to get my ducks in a row, to be able to save some money and to be able to prepare for the actual launch of the business. But, um, you know, we, we got thrown into a pretty fortunate situation there. That's so exciting. And it's just kind of giving me all of these other questions that are just kind of layering on. So I heard you say a couple things. Your babysitter was the one that said, hey, why don't you just kind of do something to address these food allergies that your daughter is having? Were you much of a baker or were you like, you know, at home chef? Or did you just kind of plunge into this even before having some of those skills? So I think my experience at Coke gave me the confidence to understand, you know, how to scale the business um, in some way. I'm a very bad baker. And when I got into the kitchen with Martha to actually experiment on bringing this product to life, I realized how bad of a baker I was. And so I was able to solicit the help of a product developer. It was a, through a cold email. I reached out to someone who responded, thankfully, and we still work with her to this day. I love that. So, so it really just goes to show that as a founder and entrepreneur, if you have a really strong vision and you're really solving a major problem, you don't have to have all the answers yourself is what we're, what I'm hearing. And so it's really about taking the step, taking the leap. Taking the leap and then being resourceful, finding the answer. Like, I don't expect that I know everything or that my team knows everything, but, you know, how do we go get the answers we need to move the business forward? Absolutely. So you mentioned your investors. So we'd love to kind of even unpack your investor journey. We know that for Black female founders, we raise less than 1% of VC funding. So we know this, this journey is not an easy one. And you have been able to get, gain the uh, the investment and attention of you know multiple investors, notable investors, including Jay-Z um, and including Karen Howling, who we have here today. So talk to us about like when you knew it was time to raise. And I know that you you hit you hit the ground running with that startup competition and winning it and winning that ten thousand dollars. So talk to us about how that led you to the next steps and what sort of confidence boost that was for you and just kind of being right out the gate, like listening to that confirmation and going for it. 
I knew how dismal the statistics were about women and particularly black women being able to raise money. So I thought it was really important for me to have as much traction as possible before I went out to try to raise capital. And so we initially bootstrapped the business. We were able to raise nearly $100,000 through different pitch competitions. I probably waited too long to raise capital because I ended up having to max out or choosing to max out my credit cards and empty my 401k and sell my engagement ring to keep the business going. So we probably should have started a little bit before we got to that point. And then it was, you know, when we first got a commitment from Whole Foods and Wegmans about a year into running the business that we were able to raise some friends and family capital. And, you know, I use that term loosely. There's no accredited investors in my family. So it was my old colleagues, my husband's old colleagues, you know, five and $10,000 checks to, to keep the lights on. But it was through that we were able to continue to get the business to the next stage where we were able to raise a million dollar seed round of funding in the summer of 2019 that was led by Marcy Venture Partners. And, you know, I think I learned in that experience a few things. So it took me a lot longer than I expected to raise capital. So to definitely prepare well in advance, I think, you know, we were fortunate that Marcy was the right partner for us. We got nearly a hundred no's along that journey. And I'm so grateful for them now. At the time, I didn't understand it, but the conversations we were having with those investors were so different than the conversation we had with Marcy and the folks that then came into the round. And I felt like they really were aligned with my vision for the business, our mission, um, really understood me as a founder. And there was just a really good alignment there. I think people sometimes underestimate like, an investor relationship is probably harder to get out of than a marriage. Like you're in it holding hands with these folks through the good and the bad. And so you want to make sure that you are aligned on what success looks like, that these are people that you actually like and want to work with, and that hopefully they feel the same way about you. Absolutely. And we know that Jay-Z is a partner in Marcy Ventures. And so how did that relationship come about? That was also pretty serendipitous. A friend of a friend um, worked in the music business and was able to get us in front of one of the partners at Marcy. And, you know, I knew from the first meeting that it was very different because they wanted to understand my upbringing. They wanted to understand what drove me and what I viewed as like the success for this business rather than immediately diving into, you know, well, what's the margin? And these are all the reasons it's not going to work. Don't get me wrong. There's definitely like a lot of financial diligence and rigor that went into it. But I think they also wanted to have an understanding of why I was doing what I was doing and what drove me. And so it really felt like they were investing in me as a founder, particularly at that early stage of the business. I was, you know, a few months removed from selling cookies out of my car. So we hadn't seen the success at retail that the business has had thus far. Beautiful. And I love the fact that they were curious and interested in you as a founder. You know, as a third generation entrepreneur, I think that that drive of what's motivating you is so essential and so key. So that's beautiful that they wanted to know that. Denise, you shared in your journey that, you know, you pawned your wedding ring, that you maxed out credit cards. What were those conversations like with your husband? You know, we might both sound crazy, but we were all in. And I think that's one of the important parts of the entrepreneurial journey. It really is a family affair from, you know, my daughter having to miss birthday parties sometimes to go work a local trade show or a local um, farmer's market with me. And for my husband to, to be fully on board, you know, he would show up at a grocery store after his like suit and tie job and put on a partake t-shirt and do demos and actually just did one this past weekend for us two days on nine to five. And so I think, you know, it doesn't change like being a founder and entrepreneur is all in all the time. And I think your family has to be supportive of that journey for it to be a success. 
That's so real. And I, you know, growing up in an entrepreneurial household, it was all in. We were helping to do everything, put labels on brochures and help pack up the car, like just do it all. So you're right. It is very much a family affair. And I think as founders, we have to kind of understand that our journey is a little different. So, you know, our community of support, our significant others, our close relationships, you know, they they really are going to have to be on board with us in order for this to really, to, for it to manifest and really to work. So it's kudos to your husband. It's beautiful to hear that he's willing, even now, after you've raised all this money, that he's still doing trade shows. So kudos to him. <laughs> Yes. Shout out to Jeremy. Thank you for working the vegan food festival this weekend. Indeed. And I did have another question. You raised a nice amount of friends and family um, capital. I think you said close to 100K. And so, you know, how did you manage those relationships? Because, you know, that can be difficult once you start to raise with your inner circle and folks that you see all the time. So how did you manage that? And what kind of lessons learned or advice would you give to others? Sure. So we ended up raising about $400,000 from wow. friends and family. And, you know, I will use that term loosely. It wasn't necessarily people I was going to see at Thanksgiving table. It was old colleagues, my husband's colleagues, and then friends of their friends. It did though, because this was, you know, none of these were like super wealthy individuals. It created even more of a sense of, you know, self-imposed pressure of like, I took these people's money. Like I need to do what I said I was going to do. But I think also like not holding all that weight on your back as a founder and making sure that you're very clear. And those folks are very clear on like, this is an investment. Like, you know, while there is potential upside, there's also potential risk in the investment. And so just making sure you're very clear at setting expectations on, you know, what success looks like for the business, what timeline you have in mind, but also letting people know that like, you know, this is, you're living the journey as it goes. And so everything's not going to happen on the timeline you expect or with the return that you expect, it could be better or it may not be. So were you doing like quarterly updates, monthly updates? How were you keeping, you know, all of your initial investors up to speed? Sure. So we send out quarterly updates. It's something we still do. And then with our investors that have invested more than a million dollars into the business, you know, they're getting monthly financial reporting and we're having more in-depth conversations there. And then we also have a board of directors that we're meeting with on a quarterly basis. And you started in 2017, is that correct? Yep. I had the idea in 2016. We launched in August of 2017 and I closed the million dollar round in June of 2019. Phenomenal. And so, you know, and now you're in... Is it over 3,000 stores? 10,000. What? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you're, it's God. been a busy couple of years. Jeez, your growth rate has been like beyond exponential. So how did you go from, you know, just what a year ago, I think I listened to an interview, it might've been about a year ago, and it was saying like from 300 to 3,000. And now you've tripled that, more than tripled that. So what has been you know, the key to being able to scale so quickly? I think because we had a slow start, we were able to build a strong foundation to the business. We understood our unit economics. We understood what levers from a marketing perspective were able to drive the velocity. And so with that understanding, and then with the capital from partners like Karen and Circle Up, we were able to accelerate fairly quickly. But I think it was because we had done so much lead work in the beginning. And I think that's the part that people often don't see. Like they see a brand pop up and they're like, oh, they're magically in 5,000, 10,000 stores. But there were three years of 
you know, 100 stores, 200 stores, 300 stores, so we could get the product right, so we could understand what parts of the story resonated with our consumers. We could understand who our consumer was and why they were choosing our brand. So I think that work in the beginning is really fundamental, or at least has been fundamental to our success. Beautiful. What is What has been your, you have so many notable accomplishments, Denise, what's been your proudest accomplishment to date? I think it's just the impact that our business has been able to have. And I will say, leaving the venture arm of a corporation, I was very much in tune with, well, this is how we're going to grow and we're going to grow this quickly. We're going to be in this many doors and we're going to get this much revenue. And then when I actually got into running the business, I think the thing that I'm most excited about as is even as a small company, you can have a positive impact on the world, whether that's through your team. Our team's 90% women, 60% people of color. We have a fellowship program alongside several HBCUs that's aimed at changing the face of diversity in the food industry. We work with No Kid Hungry, where we committed to provide a million meals to food insecure families this year. And so like, I think this idea that like your business can be doing well and you can be doing good is the thing that I'm most proud of and like how we weave that into how we think about everything here at Partake. What do you feel has made you as a founder so successful um, in your journey? Because it's not been the norm. I think that there's a couple of things that have made us successful. One, I feel like I have a very strong handle on the business. I know the numbers inside out. You know, I'm willing to admit when I don't know what I, what I don't know, but I also have a very good handle on where our velocity is, where we're having success, who our consumer is, why that consumer is choosing our brand. And so I can talk about the business inside out. But I think the other thing that's made our fundraising successful is I'm pretty authentic to who I am. And so what you see is kind of what you get, because I think where a lot of heartache happens is there's a misalignment of expectations because a founder has said what they think an investor wants to hear. And so, you know, I've been very deliberate about sharing what I think the path forward is for the business, how I'd like to operate the business. Um, You know, there's definitely always room for input. I'm the first to admit I don't know everything, but I also want to be very true to who I am and to convey that to investors so that they know what they're signing up for. Um, So I think it's understanding the business and then also being true to who I am. Let's take a quick break. While you know me as the host of the Equity Raise podcast, I'm also the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a founder and former corporate professional, I truly understand how stressed we are. With 72% of entrepreneurs suffering with mental health challenges, I knew that we needed to do something in creating a digital wellness platform that's addressing global burnout and the future of work and wellness. Utopia Spawn Global Wellness offers live and on-demand virtual classes, such as mindfulness, yoga, Pilates, cultural movement, wellness coaching, workshops, and retreats. You see, we're helping people show up as their healthiest and happiest selves daily. Also helping employers achieve their talent, retention, recruitment, and productivity goals. Our multicultural holistic approach to wellness celebrates mindful diversity, inclusion, and belonging. To learn how you can get started today, head on over to utopiasgw.com. Again, utopiasgw.com. Now let's get back to the show. 
So you just mentioned the support of Circle Up. And so we have Karen Howland here with us, who is one of your investors and just would love to just kind of hear from you, Karen. How did you come to learn about Partake Foods and Denise and what they were doing and what led you to a yes in terms of being an investor? Of course. Um, thanks so much. Uh, so we at Circle Up, we have a little bit of a different approach to sourcing deals than a lot of the traditional venture capital funds in that we've developed a proprietary data platform called Helio that goes out and tracks a million different consumer brands and helps us identify which have the highest propensity to grow in the future. Our ethos is that if you use data rather than your own networks and your own heuristics at the earliest stage of sourcing, it eliminates a lot of known and unknown biases Mm -hmm. that you ultimately will make during your investment process if you don't use data. So we we knew about Denise and we knew about her brand, um, but we really aggressively started reaching out and learning more and digging into the details when it showed up as the number one brand in the cookies and dessert category with strength across both online, offline, social and media uh, engagement, and all the real kind of key characteristics we look for, it was number one or number two across the entire cookies and dessert category. And we knew at that point, after knowing the brand, um, reading up a little bit more on Denise and getting to know her, that it was a really exciting brand that we wanted to pursue really aggressively. I love that. So it was all about the data. All about the data. They say the data doesn't lie. It's all about the data at the beginning right? The data allows us to explore a different universe of companies Mm -hmm. than just going with your network will allow you to. Um, By using the data, it takes away those initial biases um, to start to get to know a brand, get to learn about it. And then you get to learn about the founding story. You get to learn about the market opportunity. You get to hear about Denise and her passion and her background. And all of those things ultimately kind of feed into if we're going to invest or not. Beautiful. And so it's so thank you for sharing that, Karen. So you were able to see that they were on the map. They were number one in their category. Talk to us a little bit about why you feel that it is important to invest in uh, BIPOC and female founders. Yeah. So the really interesting thing is um, at Circle Club, we don't actually have that as the mission. Um, within our first fund, 50% of our investments were female founded and 30% were people of color. Mm-hmm. With our second fund, 75% of those uh, investments that we made were female founded or, or had people of color as, in, um, as founders. So we let the data really drive us towards those, those initial outreach on the sourcing front, but it's not actually our mission, which I, I actually feel like Don't get me wrong. I love the output. (laughs) I couldn't be prouder to support women founders and people of color. I think it's extraordinarily important. You talk about the amount of dollars that are uh, that are are funded towards those founders. Couldn't be prouder of what of our results. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually all the more powerful that it's not our mandate, Mm -hmm. right? We are our our mandate is to go out and to find the best consumer investments that we can make. It just so happens if rather than using my network from university or rather than basing it on my personal taste profile when I try a product, which by the way is inherently layering biases in, right? Like my taste profile is very different than the taste profile for the vast majority of the United States. If I invest based on something that I think tastes good or a brand that I like, 
that's actually not opening it up to the, the broader United States and it will reduce the amount of diversity that you're allowed, that you're able to invest into. But by using the data at that high level, um, kind of that first screen on the sourcing front, it allows us to eliminate all of those biases and invest in amazing founders like Denise. Beautiful, beautiful. And I would imagine, uh, Denise, because you had some investments along the way, it positioned you to really, you know, scale the company and brand the company and hit those markers of being number one um, rated in terms of, you know, snacks and cookies and food choices and things of that nature. So would love to hear, like even Karen from you, like if you were to give any guidance to other investors around maybe even looking outside the data for companies that maybe haven't gotten quite there yet, but they're on trend to get there just because sometimes the resources not being always as available can make it a little slower. You know, do you have any suggestions or guidance to other fellow investors in terms of really looking at um, other Black-owned, female founders, BIPOC, startup companies to try to help level the playing field a little bit? You have to take yourself out of your kind of your traditional comfort zone. It's not challenging for us to do this because we have this data platform and we're able to screen all of these amazing consumer brands and just base it on the numbers and the qualitative, I'm sorry, the quantitative aspects of it. But if you are used to talking to your little VC community, the venture capital funds that you always share ideas with, who probably look a lot like a lot like you. Or if you are going to Expo West, which is the biggest trade show on the natural food sector, and you're tasting products and you are only gravitating to products that taste like things that you like the taste of, you're closing yourself down, right? You're not opening up to the broader the, the, the broader changing trends and the um, consumer preferences in the United States. Mm-hmm. You're really eliminating that. So opening yourself up and taking yourself out of your comfort zone, sourcing ideas from, rather than going to Whole Foods to source ideas, what if you went to the dollar stores, right? There are amazing brands that are being developed and grown in the dollar stores on a regular basis. Go to farmer's markets outside of your kind of core San Francisco locations, go to farmer's markets in different cities to see what other brands are being developed, to see how people are gravitating it for. So moving outside of that comfort zone and how you've always done it is extraordinarily challenging for people, but is really the only thing that's going to invoke change. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for that. Um, That's powerful. You know, coming outside of your norm, you know, coming outside of your bubble in a sense, and just really expanding the view of how you're looking at companies to invest in, um, I think is key. I think that's really key. So we'd love to just kind of shout out, like, you know, Denise, if you could shout out any other VCs, firms, investors that you think are doing a great job in addition to to Karen and Circle Up and, you know, just the, the, we want to shout out those that are just making sure that they're helping to create a more equitable landscape for Black, female, BIPOC founders. So who else would you say is doing a good job of this? Sure. I think I've been very deliberate at bringing 
folks that I feel like are doing a good job at this into our uh, onto our cap table. And so some that come to mind are Black Capital, which was founded by Kevin Johnson, the former Phoenix Sun and former mayor of Sacramento. Um, Black Star Fund, who we actually met through American Underground um, through the Google for Black Founders program when he was uh, Kwame, the founder, was a judge in the pitch competition we uh, entered and won there. And Fearless Fund uh, down in Atlanta, investing in BIPOC women founders. Supply change capital investing in underrepresented founders as well. A group out of LA called Pendulum Holdings. Um, you know, I'm really excited to see that the landscape of investors that are considering underrepresented founders when making their investments has grown. And I think one of the things that has been really exciting for me that we've been able to benefit from is while they, these funds have that focus. They also have like amazing LPs who are giving them the capital, whether it's, you know, General Mills, Costco, like really large organizations that have been able to help move the needle for portfolio companies like myself. Um, and so I think there's the strategic lens that comes with it, but then also the impact focus, um, you know, when those funds are able to generate great returns based on investing in businesses, hopefully like partake, then they can go deploy more capital and raise more capital and deploy more into other women and people of color run businesses. So those are some that come to mind. Beautiful. So we can see how this Google for Startups Black Founders Exchange community, you know, really helped to spark that that initial chain reaction. And so we're fellow Black Founders Exchange alums. So this is it's great to be able to connect in this way. So what would you say is the legacy that you desire to leave, you know, with Partake Foods and beyond? Sure. So the name Partake initially came from this idea that I wanted my daughter and people with food allergies and intolerances to be able to partake. But then through my experience as a woman, as a person of color, as a first time founder, I've realized there's a whole bunch of other, other groups that have been underestimated and underrepresented and under resourced for too long. And so my mission through our business and as my personal legacy is to, to really lift as we climb, like how can we provide more access and resources to groups that need it and deserve it and have it? and have, have, haven't had it for so long. Beautiful. So Partake is really, uh, I consider it a purpose-driven and life-giving uh, company because you're, you know, feeding the world with nutritious foods and, and you know, really helping to remove um, just kind of the, the types of, I would say, nutritional crisis that we can go into if we are accidentally eating things that are causing um, reactions in our bodies and especially as children. So I love that also being in the wellness space. So I have to ask you, you know, being a founder is hard, right? And so self-care becomes even harder sometimes because we're working around the clock. What do you do for your self-care? I schedule it because if I don't, it doesn't happen. Um, I also give myself grace because if it doesn't happen, like, you know, I, I think sometimes then you'll beat yourself up if you didn't meditate and then journal and then work out and do all the things. And so, you know, trying to find and make the space where I can. And so for me, whether that's like physical activity or meditation, I, I do have to get my daily meditation in or I'm a hot mess otherwise. Um, but just like trying to, to do that. And I think also like, Self-care for me isn't always solitary. Sometimes it's spending time with my friends and family, and that's what fills up my cup. And so just kind of doing what makes me feel good and then creating boundaries and saying no to the things that don't. I love it. Boundaries. I believe that community is a part of self-care, doing the things that we love. So um, as we get ready to close out, what would you like you know, the world to know in terms of next steps uh, regarding Partake? I know you've expanded the brand. So what's next 
coming down the pike? I think more stores. So you will see additional distribution coming from Partake. We just went into a thousand Walmart stores um, and we'll be going into Harris Teeter this month as well and have some more distribution uh, in the works more products. So we launched a pancake waffle mix at Target this year, um, but you'll continue to see new products come from us in the coming years. And, you know, I think as our business continues to grow, hopefully we can continue to have more impact, whether that's contributing more meals to No Kid Hungry or expanding our Black Futures in Food and Beverage Fellowship Program. I love it. You're doing so many incredible things. And so it's just been such a pleasure to get to hear more of your story. And it's so inspiring. So how can people follow you and partake? Um, you can find us across all social media channels at Partake Foods um, and our website's partakefoods.com. Thank you. And Karen, how can people follow you? Similar across all social media channels. Um, I personally, um, it's you know on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter is Karen Howland, um, H-O-W-L-A-N-D, or at you know Circle Up uh, can be found at any of those, um, those avenues as well. All right. Is there anything that you'd like to share, Karen, in terms of the type of of companies in particular that Circle Up looks for. And we know it's very data-driven, but if there's anything else you'd like to share, we'd love to uh, have you share that as well. Yeah, we invest um, exclusively in early-stage consumer brands, right? Uh, brands that are between 1 and 20 million of trailing 12 months revenue. Uh, brands like Partake, where they are in retail, they have proof of concept, and they're ready to absolutely just skyrocket. And we invest in inspirational founders. The founders are a huge part of the story of what we're investing in. And we're trying to meet, we're trying to find brands that uh, are meeting unmet needs for the consumer. So a on-trend, allergen-free uh, baking product uh, brand is right in our sweet spot as far as the type of company that we're trying to pull. Beautiful. Thank you so much to both of you, Denise and Karen. It's been truly a pleasure. So thank you so much and make it a utopia day. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Karen Howland and Denise Woodard. Such an amazing story. And even though Denise has raised nearly $10 million and her products are in over 10,000 stores, I feel like she's just at the beginning of her journey. Thank you for listening to the Equity Raise podcast from the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. If you like this show, please rate, review, and share with your networks. We want to spread the word that although VC funding goes to a small fraction of women and people of color, it does not have to be this way. So we'll continue these conversations to make a change. This podcast was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Naya Fela Powell. Make it a utopian day.